Peace be with you, church. Good evening to all of you. I invite you to open up your Bibles to Luke chapter 19. Today we're going to start in verse 28 and uh, finish up the chapter all the way through verse 48. Luke 19, beginning in verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near Beth, Beth, Bethage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, why are you untying it? You shall say this, the Lord has need for it. So those who were sent went away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, why are you untying the colt? And they said, the Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. As he was drawing near already on the way down to the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowds said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near, the, near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it into a den of robbers. And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him, but they, but they did not find anything they could do for all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray, church. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that your word, uh, Lord, it, it is our light. Uh, Father, it declares to us who you are. And Lord, we thank you that we can know who you are with certainty. And Father, we just ask that uh, you, your spirit would be among us tonight. Lord, that you would open up our hearts, our spiritual eyes to see the glory of Jesus. Lord, so that we might declare with these people, um, truly declare, um, that you are king, Lord, that we have peace in you. Father, be with us. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Uh, you may be seated. 
Uh, just a quick reminder, after service, right after the service, we are going to have a church family dinner together. So don't rush anywhere. Make yourself comfortable. Uh, grab a seat on one of those tables. There's plenty, plenty of food for everybody. Um, it'll be outside right here in the breezeway. So the topic of last week's and this week's text is the kingship of Jesus and the coming kingdom of God. And the text from last week and this week is very, uh, very tied together. Um, last week we saw that, uh, we, we read that G- when Jesus, Jesus knowing that he's going to Jerusalem and that his disciples are thinking that Jesus will become king and establish his kingdom there, he told them a parable. Um, he told them this parable to kind of uh, ease their expectation, to kind of uh, bring them in a little bit because they were getting a little bit out of control. Um, they, the disciples, they were anticipating that Jesus will establish his kingdom immediately. They are on their way to Jerusalem. They think that Jesus will announce himself as king. He will finally overthrow Rome. He will free the Jews, and he will reign forever on the throne of David. And this is exciting for the disciples because, obviously, they get to uh, reign with Christ, um, or so they expect. And so Jesus tells them this parable, and in it he tells them that what they expect will not happen immediately, but that he must leave and then return, but his departure does not mean that Jesus' work on earth is stopping. While he is gone, Jesus instructs his disciples, his servants, he instructs us to continue his work to engage in the business of expanding the interests of Christ, and then he will come, and every one of us will give an account on how we, uh, what we did, how we invested the, the, the talents that Christ has given us. So in our text today, we read that when he said these things, when he said this parable, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And so they're approaching Jerusalem, they're on the Mount of Olives, and Jesus asks them something unusual. As far as we know, this only happened once. Jesus never did this before. He tells his disciples to go get a young colt, a young donkey, a donkey that has never been sat on. No one ever rode it before, and to bring it to Jesus so that he could ride this donkey into Jerusalem. And we're very familiar with the story. We know what happens. We know this this is the triumphant entry of Jesus into Jerusalem. Uh, We celebrate this day as Palm Sunday. We sing songs about it. But I just want to pause and look at what this moment actually meant for the disciples and for the people of Jerusalem. We may not realize that what Jesus did here is very controversial. He will stir up the entire city of Jerusalem. And in the midst of this excitement, he's also going to upset a lot of people. So much so that in six days he will be killed from this moment. 
What is Jesus doing? And why is the crowd so riled up? Why are they so excited to see Jesus come into Jerusalem? He's come into the city many times before. Never has there been so much excitement. What is different this time? Who, who told the people to celebrate? Why is it different? How do they know that this is the time? This is the time that we need to rejoice. Well, the answer has something to do with his donkey. As a kid growing up and hearing the story, I was always bothered by the fact that Jesus came into the city on a donkey. It just seemed kind of underwhelming. I wanted him to ride on a white horse. That would be way cooler. Later, I realized that if Jesus would have come on a horse, he would really be in trouble. A donkey is bad enough, as we shall see. In those days when kings would go visit a city, a city in their kingdom, they would ride in either on a donkey or on a horse. And when a king came into a city on a horse, this meant serious business. Sometimes it meant war or coming from war. A horse meant that the king has some problems to solve, some issues to deal with. He did not come to the city with peace. There was some serious business to deal with. But when a king rode on a donkey, everyone relaxed because the king is coming in with peace. And we know from last week, last week's text, that making Jesus king is already on the minds of the disciples. They thought that Jesus is going into Jerusalem to announce himself as the king. And even though Jesus is telling them, not yet, even though he is trying to slow down their pace and trying to hold back their excitement, at the same time, he is getting a donkey and he will ride into a city as a king who brings peace. We think he's kind of sending mixed messages here. What is Jesus doing? The disciples go into the neighboring village, and as Jesus has told them, they find a donkey. They start untying it. The owner comes, and he's like, what are you guys doing with my donkey? They say, the Lord has need of it. So he lets them take it. They bring it to Jesus. They put their clothes on it as a saddle. They sit Jesus on the donkey. And as Jesus begins making his way down the mountain, he's going to cross the Kidron Valley and go up into Jerusalem. We read, as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. This is a very important detail. The fact that they spread their cloaks on the road in front of Jesus. What are they doing? What does this mean? What they're doing is equivalent to rolling out the red carpet in front of royalty. Or in front of someone very, very important. Only royalty would receive such treatment. Kings would receive this kind of treatment for people to go before them and lay down their clothes so that they would not touch anything unclean because 
it, it was a sign that these are noble people, these are holy people, these are kings. In 2 Kings, we have a story about Jehu, uh, who becomes king of Israel, and before he does, the prophet Elisha uh, comes to him, he takes him aside privately, and he anoints him as king. And so when Elisha is done with him, and when, when, when Elisha leaves, Jehu's servants, they're like, what's going on? What, what did the prophet tell you? Did he just tell you that you are going to be a king? And Jehu says, yes, he just told me that I'm king. He anointed me as king. And here's what the servants begin to do. We read this in 2 Kings 9.13. In haste, every man of them took his garment and put it under him on the bare steps, and they blew the trumpet and proclaimed, Jehu is king. Only noble men and kings would receive such a treatment. It meant royalty. And we see this happening here. The disciples of Jesus, they recognize that this is not an ordinary entrance into Jerusalem. Jesus is coming in as a king. And so they spread their garments in front of Jesus. Last month, we visited Jerusalem and had the great opportunity to walk from the Mountain of Olives across the Kidron Valley up into the city. And that path is about a few kilometers, two, three kilometers. It's a lot of garments. What they probably did was as the donkey walked across the cloaks, they would take the ones that are already walked on behind the donkey and they would move it to the front. It was just this whole scene. The disciples are running around Jesus on the donkey. They were probably moving his, their, their, their garments from the back to the front. And this is no small thing. Put a cloak for a donkey to walk on. Your clothing is probably going to be ruined. They didn't have Walmart where you can go grab a shirt for 10 bucks. Clothing was very expensive. It was very labor-intensive to make, this would be a sacrifice you would only do to a king. You wouldn't just do this. The donkey would probably puncture holes in your clothes. And as they enter Jerusalem, this would be quite the spectacle. And the people immediately recognized what is happening. They immediately, as soon as they see this picture, as soon as they see what is going on, they know exactly what is happening. And what do they begin to do? They join the disciples. We read that they are praising God. They are rejoicing. And with a loud voice, they proclaimed, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. They proclaim Jesus as king, the entire Jerusalem is proclaiming Christ as king. Seeing Jesus coming on this, into the city on a donkey with his disciples laying out their garments before him, everyone knew what is going on. It was unquestionable to all. 
The statement that Jesus is making is, I am king. And this is not accidental. Jesus is not oblivious to what is going on. This is purposeful. He is coming into Jerusalem as king. And by doing this, Jesus is fulfilling a prophecy prophesied by Zechariah. We read it in Zechariah 9.9. It says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. The crowds, we see they join the disciples and they begin to shout and lay their own cloaks in front of Jesus and to proclaim him as king. In verse 39, we see the response of the Pharisees. And we see that they are not happy. They think this is all a foolish joke. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. You're probably thinking, Jesus, you're kidding, right? This isn't happening. Maybe they're even giving Jesus the benefit of the doubt. You really don't think you're King Jesus, right? We could see here that they're putting the blame on the disciples. They say, teacher, rebuke your disciples. Tell them to shut up. Tell them to stop this nonsense. Just think about this moment, again, from the perspective of the Pharisees. This this event is not happening in a vacuum. This is Rome. There are rulers, there are authorities, there are kings who are in place, who govern and rule. Because of previous rebellions, Rome is already on edge with the Jews. They're always ready to put out any kind of a rebellion. And so for the Pharisees, this is a volatile situation. This is irresponsible. This could quickly spill over into an insurrection. We see that they fail to see Jesus as king. They fail to see him as the Messiah. While all the signs are pointing to the fact that he is the Messiah. If you remember in Matthew 2, Uh, When the wise men came from the east, they come to King Herod, and they ask him, where is Jesus, the king of the Jews? And and, and Herod is troubled. Uh, He's like, what is going on here? And so he takes all the scribes, all the Pharisees, he calls calls them to himself, and they say, where's the king of, where's Christ to be born? Where's the Messiah gonna be born? And so the scribes, They go to scripture and they say he's going to be born in Bethlehem. So these guys know the scripture. They know that a king is to be born. They know that he is to be born in in Bethlehem. They know this text from Zechariah. They know that the Messiah is to come into Jerusalem on a donkey, yet they fail to see 
Jesus as king and as the Messiah. They only see the problems that this event can cause. And so they tell Jesus, rebuke your disciple. Tell them that what they are doing is foolish. Tell them to stop this. We're going to get ourselves into trouble here, Jesus. And so what does Jesus say? He answers, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Jesus basically tells them, your problem is not the disciples. It's me. I know exactly what is going on, and I deserve every bit of this worship and praise. I deserve all the cloaks on the ground. I deserve all the palm branches that are being cut. I deserve all of this because I am king. This is not a joke. And this is no ordinary king. This is the son of God himself. The Messiah himself. All creation is groaning, waiting for the day of deliverance. The very rocks that Jesus created know who their maker is, and are ready to cry out and to worship him. Pharisees do not recognize this moment, that this is the true king in front of them, and that he is worthy of every bit of praise because he's not just a king, a self-proclaimed king, but this is the Messiah, the king of kings. And so as Jesus makes his way through Jerusalem, you see that he's not headed to the palace of Herod or to the palace of Pontius Pilate. He's not going to overthrow the government. Jesus is coming on a donkey. He's coming in peace. He is humble and he is meek. And as the crowd rejoices, we see that Jesus is weeping. He's lamenting. Verse 41, we read, and when he drew near, the, drew near and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your own enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you, and they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jerusalem literally means the city of peace. And Jesus said, would you have known this day what actually makes for peace? Jesus is weeping, he's lamenting, because this rejoicing masks the true reality of this city's posture towards Jesus. And that posture is that, for the most part, Jerusalem has actually rejected Christ. Praise that is rising up to Jesus from this crowd will be very short-lived, actually. 
Jesus is weeping because in less than a week, many of these same people will flip to the side of the Pharisees and demand that Jesus would be crucified. Even his own disciples that brought the cult to Jesus and who are laying down their clothing before him, they will deny him, they will run away from him. Jesus knows that this is going to happen. He is weeping because ultimately they did not recognize the time of Messiah's visitation. Jesus loved this city. He spent a lot of time in this city. Since he was a 12-year-old boy, every year he would travel to Jerusalem with his parents. He would go to the temple. Uh, He would spend time with the Pharisees. Uh, They would discuss the word of God. People would be amazed at the wisdom of Jesus even when he was 12. Jesus loved this city. He lamented over it many, many times. And here he is being rejected as the giver of peace. And so he says, because you did not know the time of, your visit, of my visitation, your visitation, and have rejected the giver of peace, devastation lies ahead. Jerusalem will be utterly destroyed. And we know just 40 to 50 years later, it was seized by Rome. It was utterly destroyed, and 1.1 million Jews were slaughtered inside of that city. All of this is on the mind of Christ. And he is weeping. Verse 45, Jesus is, again, not heading towards the palace of Herod. He's not trying to overthrow the government. He's headed to the temple. And we read, he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, it is written, my house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. This text is just filled with so much emotion. There's celebration and joy. There's weeping and lamenting. And as Jesus comes to the temple, he is filled with wrath. He is filled with righteous indignation towards what is happening in the house of God. And so what, why is Jesus upset? Why is Jesus accusing them of making God's house a den of robbers? Robbers. The temple, the temple represents God's presence among his people. And so this was the central place of worship for all the Jews. Um, this is Passover week, the holiest week for all the Jews. It is the day that God has delivered them out of Egypt and spared them. Um, it is the day that they had to sacrifice a lamb and Uh, put blood, paint blood on their doorposts to be spared from the angel of death that was killing every firstborn in Egypt. And so on this day, on this week, all worshipers of God from all around Rome were coming to the temple to bring a sacrifice and to worship God. 
And instead of reverently remembering this event and assisting the people of God in worship, the priests, the scribes, and the Pharisees have made this week into a lucrative business venture. They would tell people, don't bring your animals from home. Just buy them here. Convenient, especially if you're traveling a far distance. You don't have to worry about your animal being hurt. You just come, you pay the money, and you have a sacrifice. The problem is that in the temple, they only accepted a certain currency to purchase the animals. So they were forcing people to exchange money. That's already a hassle. And they obviously cheated people as these exchanges were made. They would charge a certain percentage, a certain fee to do, for, for doing this exchange. On top of that, they would charge crazy money for these animals. And so instead of focusing on the worship of God, people would be forced to do all of this business. And by the time they get their animal, they have a bad taste in their mouth because they were just ripped off. They were fleeced by the very people who were supposed to assist them in the worship of God. And Jesus is enraged by this. He begins to drive them out. And he says, my house shall be a house of prayer. It is a place of contemplation. A place of worship, a place of prayer. Instead, there's money clinging. You guys have made it into a marketplace. Your business venture, a den of robbers, as you are fleecing the people of God. And so Jesus drove him out, and we see in verse 47 that he was teaching daily in the temple. After this moment, the chief priests, the scribes, and the other leaders, they were done with Christ. They made it personal. They made it their mission to seek out a way to destroy him. And in less than a week, they will. I think another reason Jesus is so upset with the corruption that is going on in the temple is because of the significance of this Passover week and what it points to. Year by year, over the past thousand years, thousand two hundred years, this Passover week, every single year, is a bright and shining arrow that would point to Jesus. From the beginning, the first, from the first Passover in Egypt, the sacrificial lamb was killed so that the Jews would be spared. And every year since, they would bring their sacrifice to be slaughtered before God to atone for their sin. And this would all point to the day when Jesus, the ultimate lamb, the final lamb, would come and die and atone for the sins of the world once and for all. All these years, the thousands of Passovers that happened, this week, all these, all these years of Passovers were to have their end. And their end would come in Christ. This is less than a week away, and instead of 
contemplating about the significance of this week and the mercy of God, they have reduced this great and holy symbolic week to a corrupt business transaction. The end of the sacrificial system is happening this week. And they don't care. They do not recognize their king. And Jesus himself will become a victim of this money-changing scheme as he himself will be just like the other animals exchanged for 30 pieces of silver and then killed. As we think about King Jesus, the Prince of Peace, riding on a donkey into Jerusalem as a symbol of bringing peace, there's an irony here. He's making it clear that he's not coming to Jerusalem to make war. He is a king, but he's not coming to make war. but he actually is coming to make war. And this war will be with the eternal enemies of our soul. He's going to war on our behalf. He's going to war against the powers of darkness that held us captive. He's going to war against our sin. He will satisfy the wrath of God on our behalf by paying for our sin with his very own life once and for all. He is going to war against death as he's going to reign victorious over it through his resurrection. He will be waging war with his will as he struggles and as he submits himself to the will of his father. And Jesus is waging this war so that he can bring us into peace. So that we may have true peace, church. Eternal peace. We who were enemies of God, who hated God, who were separated from God with our sin, Jesus made this war so that we would have peace with the Father and peace with our God. No enmity. And so we must be careful and pay close attention not to be like the people of Jerusalem. So the question to us today is, do you recognize the time of Christ's visitation? Listen, he's still, he is still today. He comes as a king, meek and humble, riding on a donkey, a symbol of peace. Christ is still coming through the preaching of the gospel as a king on a donkey. But one day he will come on a horse as a mighty warrior, and he will bring his sword against all who have rejected him as the prince and king of peace. 
And so the question is, do you recognize the time of Jesus' visitation? We can easily criticize the people of Jerusalem and say, how could you not recognize Christ? But the question to us is, do we, did we, do we recognize the time of his visitation? Today, as you hear his word, do you believe and receive him? Are you at peace with God? True peace can only be found in Christ. Church, the peace that he gives is eternal and can never be taken away. God gives us this peace through Christ today. And for that, we must join in with the people and praise and worship our God. Let's pray.